How are you? We are talking today about forgiveness. We are in the fifth week of our Indispensable Wisdom series and uh, I hope you've been here for most of them. So far we've learned about listening well from Mary and Martha, we've learned about dealing with desire from King David, we have learned about uh, living true to ourselves from Nicodemus who liked to skulk around in the dark and we have learned about avoiding judgmentalism and self-righteousness from Judas, Jesus' betrayer. And this week we turn to the story of Absalom. Everyone remember Absalom? Everyone knows Absalom. Well, maybe not, right? Don't worry, I'm going to tell you the story. So, Absalom is, the, is one of the sons of David. David has another... Uh, well. David has seven wives, right? One for each day of the week. Remember we talked about that? Right, yep, we got that. Um, we are going to discover some indispensable wisdom from Absalom because Absalom is the poster child for unforgiveness, resentment and revenge. So yes, this message, this lesson today is perhaps one of the toughest to preach. The ability to forgive and to move on is one of the most difficult things that a human being can pursue. And I also should give a, a slight adults-only warning before we get into this story. This story reads much like a series of uh, Game of Thrones, although not the last series. Um, there is and will be in this story incest, rape, murder, intrigue, scandal, jealousy and battle. Sounds like a cool story, right? Fortunately, the language is PG, which is good, right? But the only thing about this story that's PG. Are you ready? You're not sure, are you? You're not sure. You're not sure. You're thinking, if this story turns out the way Game of Thrones did, I want to, I want to start there. Right. All right. So, King David has seven wives, one for each day of the week, at least we think he has seven wives. We're not entirely sure, I just say seven because, you know, it's cool. Um, he also had around 20 sons and the best known of his sons is Solomon. Yes? Are we, are we, you're a lot less vocal this week than last week. Rebecca, why are they more vocal for you? Okay, all right. Um, another son to another wife is Absalom and Absalom has a sister, Tamar. Uh, yet another son to another wife is Amnon. Amnon, half-brother to Absalom and Tamar. Tamar is an extremely beautiful woman and over time Amnon becomes obsessed with his half-sister, Tamar. Until his lustful obsession grows out of control, on one fateful day Amnon tricks Tamar into entering his private tent where he rapes her. With his lust satisfied, Amnon's love turns to disgust and Tamar is thrown out onto the street and the door is bolted. In those days, a raped woman is a defiled and dishonoured woman, doomed never to marry, forced to future of shame and prostitution. So Tamar's brother Absalom enters the scene. He discovers his sister's exploitation. Here is how it is recorded 
in 2 Samuel chapter 13. 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 20. Her brother Absalom said to her, has your brother, has your brother Amnon had his way with you? Now, my dear sister, let's keep it quiet. A family matter, he is, after all, your brother. Don't take this so hard. But Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's home, bitter and desolate. King David heard the whole story and was enraged, but he didn't discipline Amnon. Not a word, whether good or bad, would Absalom speak to Amnon, because he hated him for violating his sister Tamar. Okay, let's pause for a moment in the story. Initially, Absalom tries to keep the incident quiet. Uh, it's as though he feels as though um, it could be swept under the rug and that his, his sister could go on to live a full life. He takes care of his sister and brings her into his home. King David, even though he is enraged, doesn't do anything about it, at least not that we can see. And the ancient manuscripts, okay, so there are some ancient manuscripts that add the idea that David did not discipline Amnon because Amnon was the firstborn, the heir to the throne. I also wonder whether or not David's obsession with Bathsheba played into the way he reacted in this situation. But David's lack of reaction, as far as Absalom is concerned, seems to say, just drop it. Just forget about it. Just move on. Let's just get over it. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you've been hurt by somebody and someone else comes along and says, just get over it. Has that ever happened to you? Has it ever helped? No, it doesn't. And it doesn't help for Absalom either. It supercharges his anger and realigns it towards David. Now he is angry at his father as well as his brother. In Absalom's case, his lack of forgiveness goes ballistic. And what Absalom doesn't seem to realize, and what we need to remember, is that forgiveness does not mean approving of what someone else has done. Forgiveness does not mean pretending that evil never took place. It doesn't mean making excuses for other people's bad behavior. It doesn't mean overlooking abuse. It doesn't mean denying that others tried to hurt you repeatedly. It doesn't mean that you may have been humiliated. It doesn't mean letting others walk all over you. It doesn't mean refusing to press charges when the law is broken. It doesn't mean that you must become best friends again. It doesn't mean that your relationship will go back to what it was before. It doesn't mean even that you have to tell the other person that you forgive them. And it doesn't mean that all the negative consequences of that action are cancelled out. Instead, forgiveness is not about dismissing, minimising or forgetting an injustice. It is about being freed from it so that you can protect yourself, make changes and move on. Well, Absalom doesn't forgive. Two years go by and Absalom uses a sheep-shearing festival, which I find a little bit amusing, a sheep-shearing festival as an excuse to gather all the sons of David together, all 20. 
He says, let's have a party, just the princes. And of course, Amnon is invited. And the text seems to imply that this is the first time Amnon has ever been a part of a family thing like this. So Absalom, though, sets it up with his servants. He pre-organizes it so they get Amnon drunk, or once Amnon is drunk enough, at Absalom's signal, the servants are to rush in and kill Amnon. He gives the signal, servants rush in, they kill Amnon, all the other brothers freak out, jump up, jump on their horses and ride away. When the first reports reach King David, it sounds like the royal wedding. It sounds like all of his sons were killed by Absalom. But Jonadab clears it up. Jonadab, son of Shimei, this is uh, 2 Samuel 13, verse 32. I'll explain in a moment why we're skipping through real quick. Jonadab, son of Shimei, David's brother, says, My Lord should not think that they killed all the princes, only Amnon is dead. This has been Absalom's express intention ever since the day Amnon raped his sister Tamar. Absalom's lack of forgiveness turns him into a murderer. And it doesn't stop there. Absalom runs away to Geshur, the country his mother came from originally, and he stays there for three years until he is allowed to come back to Jerusalem. In that time, his anger and resentment grows. This time, directed towards his father. You may think that revenge quenches anger. The story of Absalom says it doesn't. You may have heard that time heals all wounds. The story of Absalom says it doesn't. Even though Absalom is readmitted to Jerusalem, his father still wouldn't see him, could not accept him and reinstate him to a place of sonship because of what he had done. And that tears David. You can read that in, in the writing. But Absalom is, is annoyed by this. For two years, he's in Jerusalem and hasn't been seen by his father and restored to sonship. And so he tries to get one of the king's generals' attention. So you can't just rock up and have a chat with David when you've been excommunicated like Absalom has. So he has to go through this general and the general keeps ignoring his emails or smoke signals or messengers, whatever, right? So, so Absalom decides the way I'll get his attention is I'll set fire to his field. Bit of a temper tantrum, if you ask me. So he does, and the, the general comes running over and says, what, 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 what are you doing? And he says, well, you weren't paying attention to me, so I set fire to your field. I want to, I want to see my dad. The general says, Ugh! I think that's a technical translation. It gets worse and worse and worse, doesn't it? His half-brother offends his sister's honor, and later it leads to murder, excommunication, vandalism, and rebellion. It's kind of weird how unforgiveness plays out in life. Let me uh, talk to you for a second about the lesson of the leak. Some time ago, there was, actually quite a long time ago, there was a leak in our foyer. Does anyone know this? If you go out there, not now, later, you'll see there are a few tiles missing over in the corner near where the uh, fire panel is. There are a few tiles missing from the ceiling and that's because there was a water leak. But there's no roof above that. 
And we, uh, we're still not entirely certain, but we've traced water all the way across to the other side of the building. It had kind of traveled along a concrete slab and then down a cable, and where the cable goes into the wall, it drops off onto our ceiling. And unforgiveness is like that. The damage could be over here in the middle of the foyer, but the source could be way over here. And that's the way it plays out. I don't know, have you ever had that experience with somebody? Someone gets angry and upset at something. They get so upset and it seems a little bit irrational. Have you ever had that experience? And it just seems like something else is going on. Have you ever had that experience? Hands up if you're sitting next to them. One possible explanation is that some sort of hurt that hasn't been dealt with is oozing out at this point in their life. Someone once described it like this. He'd been, um, for 10 years, he'd held a bitterness against his ex-wife after a really contentious divorce. And unforgiveness, he said, it was like a little vial of acid placed right behind my heart. Every time I moved, it spilled. The resentment would well up again. It didn't even need to have anything to do with my current circumstance. It spilled onto everything and ruined everything. That's what unforgiveness is like. It's not always that well connected to the source, but it spills out and poisons everything. Well, Absalom marches on Jerusalem. David escapes with his wives before he gets there, and so Absalom is mad. He decides to exact revenge by raping all of his father's concubines on the roof of the palace. Told you it's a ridiculous story. Yeah, sometimes people get so angry and so caught up in revenge that they turn into the people that they hate. Seen that? Well, a battle ensues. David and his armies defeat Absalom and Absalom dies. It's not a great story, is it, really? Um, And if you want to uh, read all the gory details, then uh, I invite you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 13, where we began, and the story goes all the way through to chapter 18, which is why we're not reading it all this morning. But sometimes you get to see how unforgiveness plays out over seven to eight years of Absalom's life, which is why it's so many chapters long. Well, what do we do with this information? How do we figure out how to forgive those who've hurt and humiliated us so that we don't find ourselves and our lives constantly poisoned? Well, I think the solution comes in understanding of the word resentment. Resentment is a a combination of two words in Latin, re, that means again, and sento which means to feel the cut, to feel the hurt, to feel the wound, to feel again and again and again the pain of that initial cut, that initial wound. That's what resentment means. And yeah, that's how resentment feels, isn't it? And I'm thinking about how do we deal with major cuts and hurts, like physically? And they have have to be handled carefully, If you're in a car accident where you're hit by a truck 
or something in a serious car accident. You can sustain a heap of injuries. And there are things you have to realise about that damage and the way it's going to be healed, aren't there? And I think this is the same, there is the same correlation between the way in which we deal with the major hurts of our lives in terms of the hurts and humiliations that happen to us. Sometimes they're as severe as being hit by a car. First of all, when you, when you sustain huge amounts of uh, injuries like this, the first thing you have to realise is you don't deal with those injuries by yourself. If you hit by a car, then you've got first aiders and paramedics and firemen and nurses and doctors and all sorts of people come around you to help you, to give advice, to lend their skills in your healing. In this community of faith, we also have lots of people who are here to help. Friends and life group members, officers, pastoral care team members, counsellors, and we even have a psychologist on staff who are all willing to help you work through the wounds, the hurts and the humiliations. Secondly, you realise when you're hit by a car, you don't deal with the whole thing at once. If you're hit by a car, recovery time is not instantaneous. It can take weeks and months, and sometimes you have to work through injuries in a staged process, dealing with one aspect at a time. doesn't matter how good your surgeons are. They'll do piece by piece by piece. Forgiveness, I think, works the same way. When the hurts are so great, so all-pervasive and affecting so much of your life, that it's important to take a staged approach sometimes. And the way you tackle it with the help of the, the doctors and the, the counsellors and psychologists and people like that, you tackle it in stages as time progresses. Time may not heal all wounds, but work and time heals wounds. And finally, when you get hit by a car, you, you sometimes need to be healthy enough to go through surgery. Uh, yeah, you, you can have lots of injuries and wounds fixed instantly, but sometimes there's a problem where you won't have enough strength to go into the, the deeper things and the darker things and the more difficult surgeries that need to take place. There needs to be an inner strength of a person before they can tackle what needs to what, what, what's going to come, Yeah? I sometimes wonder how David, because David is the father and he's, he's watching his sons over time like this and he is just torn apart. And at the end of the story, when Absalom dies, he is just torn apart. But what does David write? Psalm 121. I look up to the mountains. Does my strength come from the mountains? No. My strength comes from God, who made heaven, earth, and mountains. He won't let you stumble. Your guardian God won't fall asleep. So my question is this. What acid do you carry? 
what hurts and humiliations hold you? What needs to be forgiven in your life for you to move on? And where will you start that process? We're going to, um, Anne's going to come, we're going to sing a song called His Provision. Again, reminding us of the strength we gain from being in God's presence and from having God's presence in us. A strength that says, no matter what you face, I am always with you. A strength that says, no matter what has been done to you, no matter what hurts, what humiliations, you are infinitely valuable. That is a strength that you can always hold on to. When you travel back into the dark places of your past and you attempt, with the help of somebody, to to work through those hurts and humiliations, you will always have the strength of the Holy Spirit whispering to you, you are mine. You are valuable. This, This hurt, this history, this humiliation does not define you. I do. And I died for you because you are invaluable. So my question is this, who do you need to forgive? Perhaps it's, it's a much smaller sort of, much smaller sort of hurt and, and you might be at the stage where you could write a letter offering forgiveness. You might be at the stage where you could send a text or a phone call or something like that. You might be at a point where you're sitting there thinking, well, these things happened to me in my life and I thought I dealt with them, but just thinking of it now, it just hurts. Maybe you're at a stage where you need to come talk to some of us. Maybe that's a plan you can put in place. But right now, I'm going to invite you to sing with me. At the moment of my weakness, when my need for power is plain and my own strength is exhausted once again, the Lord has made provision for the day of my despair. And His precious Holy Spirit hears my prayer. That could be today where we begin. God, help me. That's it. This place of prayer is open. If you'd like to come and to pray, to step out of, out of your everyday normal life and step into a place of, of healing and prayer, then this place of prayer, there's a couple benches here, thousands of people have knelt here before, and they're open again. As we sing this song, I, I encourage you to continue a work of forgiveness, to investigate your life and to find healing and wholeness. Let's sing. <laughs>